0: Well, it's good to be with you. I, I want to commend you, adults and parents. Uh, we had a phenomenal turnout, not only from the uh, uh, teenage group, uh, but we uh, had a great turnout from the, those of you parents who have been traveling uh, where, where we've been at each service uh, in a different location in, the, in, the, uh, in your town here. And uh, I've been extremely pleased about... Uh, about what I've been sensing in the services, that you haven't come as spectators, but as uh, participators in what God is doing, and um, I've just been thrilled to be here with you uh, for this week of revival. Um, I want you to open your Bibles this evening to John chapter 5, and uh, really been immersing my life into this chapter, and uh, studying it, and and coming to grips with uh, the message that is presented here, and it indeed is powerful. I want you to mark uh, in your Bibles, if you would, not only this passage we're looking at this evening. We're going to center in on one verse. Uh, It's verse 30 of chapter 5. But I would also like you to mark Luke chapter 1 with me as well, if you wouldn't mind. And we're going to use that as a reference point. Um, What's been going on here in this passage is... uh, this is the first setting. When you come into chapter 5, it's Jesus' second visit to the temple. His first visit to the temple, there, uh, from John's perspective back in chapter 2, there really wasn't much uh, teaching and preaching going on. There was a sign or two, and of course, Jesus rushes through the temple, and he's, he's turning over tables, and, and it's very aggressive, the things that takes place there. Uh, but there really wasn't an extended discourse between Jesus and the leadership of Israel. Uh, and this is the first time that that takes place, okay? So when he comes into uh, uh, the temple this time, uh, there is, in this chapter, extended dialogue. There is extended conversation, and Jesus is desperately trying to get across to them uh, the new covenant, the new thing that God is wanting to do uh, among his people, which again is radical. Now, to kind of break down this passage for you, and it's really important, and I didn't bring my marker board with me this evening, I like marker boards, um, but uh, the first 15 verses of chapter 5 is the story. It's Jesus comes into the temple and you find him at the area of the Sheep Gate, which uh, has its own aroma, uh, has its own little uh, thing going on over there at the Sheep Gate. And of course, right inside there, there's the pool of Bethesda. Uh, which is how they pronounce that. And uh, around this pool, because of the tradition that surrounded the pool, you have a number of uh, lame, blind, crippled, invalid type of people, outcasts of society. They've gathered here uh, for the sake of being healed. And the idea was, is they had this tradition, again, where uh, they believed an angel of the Lord would descend down into the pool. And, the, and this, would, uh, uh, this would happen, or they would know that this was happening when the waters would become stirred. And uh, the idea was, is if you were in the pool quick enough before the angel left or before anybody else was in there, uh, you would be healed. And that was the that was uh, what they were banking on. Scholars have no uh, uh, when you begin to read in that, and the experts tell us that uh, there's no proof that ever took place. That ever that that ever took place. In fact, they believe that that was kind of gathered from a pagan tradition. That it really wasn't true. It never took place. And the stirring of the water was because of the springs at the bottom of it. So. Uh, but nonetheless, this is the scene. Now Jesus comes there and as we looked at last night, and man, what a passage just this has been for us, Jesus looks across the temple and out of his own initiative, uh, out of his own out of his own inspiration, um, and, and again, especially listening to Jesus' comments later on in the chapter. Uh, He sees this man through the eyes of his father, and he just cannot help himself to get involved in his life. He doesn't want anything from this guy. He doesn't use him for his own ministry. He's not a stepping stone to get to somebody else. Uh, He intersects the life of this man who's been here for 38 years, and this man is healed. Well, Jesus tells him, take up your mat and walk, which becomes a problem for the leadership of Israel. Uh, Because they see this man carrying his mat, and of course, they immediately jump on his case. And why do they jump on his case? Because the day in which he's carrying it is the Sabbath. And you don't do those kind of things on the Sabbath. So uh, they really get on him, and and, uh, they ask the man uh, who told him to do this. And again, we addressed this last night. But the guy says the most amazing thing. He says, I have no idea. Uh, He didn't know who he was. He didn't know who healed him. And it makes you look at this. Now, hear me tonight. See, there's, as we looked at last night, there's all kinds of problems there. See, Jesus does this incredible miracle. He heals this man, and he doesn't even introduce himself. See, there's no gospel presentation. All that stuff is missing. See, there's a prime opportunity for Jesus to say, hey. This is how I did this. Everyone knows the guy. He's been there for 38 years. I mean, you can imagine the man standing up. He's been healed. He's running around the temple going, yes, yes. And he's yelling and screaming and he's happy and all of that. And Jesus says, hey, forgot your mat. So the guy runs back here. He grabs his mat and he's heading out of the, I mean, this is a prime opportunity to say, hey, this is the movement of God in the midst of this place. I'm the Messiah. That kind of deal. And uh, he, he doesn't do that. In fact, uh, we didn't point this out last night, but if you look with me at verse... Uh, What would be verse uh, 13? It says, the man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. In other words, there wasn't such a ruckus that Jesus got lost in the crowd or was separated or wasn't able. Jesus took the initiative just as he got involved in the guy's life. He took the initiative and slipped away into the crowd that was there. So he purposely walked away and left all of those windows open. And you're left with the conclusion that the reason Jesus was involved in this man's life was not to use him as a stepping stone to get to somebody else. Uh, he cared about this man. And it was powerful. And the Jews are, uh, they become irate with Jesus because he has broken their Sabbath laws. Uh, their, their Sabbath traditions of upholding the law. Of keeping the Sabbath. Okay, that's what what happened. Verses 1 through 15, that's the story. Now, when you come into verse 16 and you move down through, what you're going to have is, is the conversation with the Jewish leadership of Israel and Jesus over what he just did. They're really concerned about this and they begin to dialogue. And Jesus begins to move through this section and he's giving them insight into why he did what he did. Okay, you with me? He's giving them insight. And hey, why I act the way that I act, this is it. That's talked about from verses 16 down through verse 29. Tonight, we're going to look at verse 30, which is Jesus' his own testimony. Oh, I love testimonies. Do you like testimonies? I've, I love these, even as a kid. And again, we weren't really raised in church. But uh, I would go to church with my mother at a little Baptist church right across the cornfield. We'd walk over there. My dad was Mormon and my mom wouldn't like to go. So we would sneak away and go to another church. And the pastor would give opportunity for testimonies. And I love testimonies. And then later on, when my family and I started going to Harris Chapel Church of the Nazarene in Indiana, uh, during revival, that was always the highlight of the last night. You came realizing that the preacher was not going to preach. <laughs> and, uh, and it was going to be time for testimonies. And it was always wonderful. And people talked about what God did in their life and that kind of thing. Uh... Which is not going to happen tonight because I'm preaching. But the idea is, is that there would be these testimonies. Well, here, uh, here in this passage, Jesus Himself testifies. Okay, now this is really good. Okay, it's really good stuff uh, because it's the start of the testimony section of our passage. Verse 15 verses is the story. Verses 16 through 29 is what Jesus is in dialogue with them, explaining what he's been doing, and then he comes to the end of that explanation, and in verse 30 he says, "Hey, bam." Here is my testimony over, hey, I'm telling you what I've just said is true. Now, in their society, a testimony by itself, based on the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, a testimony by itself was not valid. So, verse 30 is Jesus' testimony. And then from verses 31 down through 47, which is the end of that chapter, there are all these other testimonies that fall in line with Jesus. And they're saying the same thing that Jesus is saying. John the Baptist's testimony is there. The Father himself is testifying about Jesus. You have the scriptures that are testifying about Jesus. You have his words works that are testifying. I mean, over and over, even Moses is testifying about what Jesus has been doing. Uh, It's a powerful passage of Scripture, and it's been changing my life. I have really come to a point, uh, and I've really been pleased where we've been journeying to this week. Uh, Everything seems to come to a head tonight. Um, The days in my life of being casual about this uh, have to come to an end. Uh, There is something... I guess what I'm trying to say is when you come into the the stories of the Bible, even back in the Old Testament, there was such urgency about this. There was such... See, casual was not the way you talked about this. See, dying on a cross is not casual. (laughs) You understand. Capital punishment is not casual. See, this is extreme stuff. See, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's talking about capital punishment. To relay that in our day and age, it's, it's jump in your electric chair and, hey, get on with me. See, that's the idea. You don't talk about death penalty casual. Okay? This, is, this is serious stuff. Uh, and what Jesus is talking about is, 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 is capital punishment ideas. It's, it's losing your life. It's, it's giving up yourself. It's coming to the end of who you are until your life is so identified with his life that what you're doing is what he's doing. What's going on in you is going on in him. This is the idea. And, see, I've really been embracing that in my own life and and it's, it's dangerous, it's threatening. See, your, your views, your, see your future, see, all of that kind of stuff comes into perspective when you really come back to the call that we've been giving. Christianity. Losing yourself, losing your future, losing your opinion and having no other opinion but Jesus. Getting wrapped up in him. This is where it's all moving. This is what we've been talking about this week. And it really comes to a head in our passage. I want to look with you tonight, again, at Jesus' testimony, which is in verse 30. And let me read this for us, and uh, we'll ask the Lord to help us. This is how it reads. John chapter 5, verse 30. I'm reading out of the NIV. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Father, we love you this evening. This is not preacher talk. This This is me talking to you. I have spent my whole life on my own, living for myself, surviving, walking and making decisions based in my own interests. And to have at the very core, the very center of my life, decisions, uh, attitudes, plans, future, those kinds of things. That are not in my best interest is radical. To live and respond and think and work and act. Not for my best interest but for the interest of you is radical to me. Perhaps it's what it means to lose my life. That is the sum total of your son's testimony father. And I want it to be my testimony. Father, we want to have a testimony tonight that says, hey, what matters to me is what matters to the Father. My opinions are the opinions of the Father. Help us come to grips with that tonight, and we'll give you all the praise. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, When you look in our passage, again, uh, original language, uh, we use that as preachers to kind of help clarify. And And when it really comes down to it, I believe the Holy Spirit communicates... Uh, beyond language barriers. I really believe that. In fact, that's what makes preaching so phenomenal. You with me? That's what makes preaching so phenomenal is that uh, a preacher is not a, uh, is not a, uh, what is it? I've heard it presented as this before. A preacher is a persuader. That's what I've always heard preachers are. They persuade you. Well, (laughs) I don't buy that. See, I'm not a persuader. I'm not trying to sell you anything, okay? Um, If I was trying to sell you something, my message would drastically change, okay? Uh, there'd be a lot about um, paying the evangelist more. There'd be a lot about, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, okay? Uh, but I'm not trying to sell you anything, and I'm certainly not tar- trying to persuade you with anything. The idea is is that I believe preaching is an opportunity where the Word of God is preached, and you understand, even the Bible tells us, that the, that the author of the Bible was not man, it was God, okay? See, the, the biblical writers wrote, but they weren't authoring. See, the author is him, and the author is alive. So as the word of God is preached, the author is conveying that to you in ways that you can understand, which is wonderful. See, we're all, you, you study this in psychology, in school. See, we're all different. I'm a very visual person. I use my hands, and that's the way I understand. and uh, That's why marker boards and visual aids, those kind of things, help me. Uh, we all learn different. Uh, some of you may not be that way. Some of you may be audible uh, learners. Others of you may have to read in order to understand, or or use visual aids. We all process differently. What's wonderful is, is the Lord knows how you uh, how you understand. The Lord knows how you process. He knows your personality, which is what which is what is so wonderful. See, when the Word of God is preached, it it applies to us in each and every one of us in our own specific way. If that makes sense. So to be able to see, if this was all on my shoulders. Man, that'd be difficult because I'd have to apply this to each and every one of your own lives. You know, hit to the teens and then the adults and then the, the older adults and then the older, older, older adults. And, and then, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But see, I don't have to do that because somehow when the word of God is preached, the Holy Spirit takes that. Uh, so language, language barriers really are not that much uh, of barriers. When you come into our passage, there is a couple things that you probably should be aware of. Uh, Jesus' language here is emphatic, Um this means it's, it's uh, certain aspects of this, this, uh, his statement here is uh, accentuated, it's uh, accented, it's, it's highlighted, if you might say. And we leave some of that out in the original language. Our English translation says, uh, the first sentence of our passage, By myself I can do nothing. Now in the Greek, it would read something like this. Not by myself I can do nothing. Okay? Now, that's real bad English, It's great Greek. Because the idea is, is that it's emphatic. And he's stressing that A, it's not by myself. Okay? By myself, I can do nothing. Okay? That the idea is, and one of the commentators I read this week on this, just checking my work and making sure I wasn't in, in left field or right field, uh, said that the idea of Jesus' statement here was that if the father, what he's stressing is if the father were ever to depart from Jesus, as if, as if that was possible, uh, he'd be powerless. He'd be absolutely powerless. Because everything going on in his life is the absolute product of the Father being with him. Now, folks, if you've been reading, and if you've been paying attention this week as we've been going through and studying this passage, you can't miss that. You can't miss that. You can't miss that. Everything comes back to that. The Christian message is really, really boiled down uh, to that truth. It is being intimately, tightly connected with God, period. To such an extent that you are just, you are one That's the idea. Jesus prays this for the disciples. He says, Father, let them be one as you and I are one. (laughs) And he gets into all that kind of language. As we're tight, let us be tight. See, that's the the thing that he's been talking about here. Now, uh, to kind of recap a little bit some of this language, uh, go back with me in verse uh, 19. Jesus... says here in verse 19, he says, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Uh, Two Greek uh, words that we would translate do in the New Testament. Uh, It's difficult to know when when which is used. One word, one English word for do, a couple different Greek words for do. Uh, Two that John used pretty uh, consistently, the Greek words proso, and you remember the other one, poieo. Wow, impressed. Uh, proso and poieo. The Greek word proso, which we translate do, just like we translate poieo do. The Greek word proso, translated do, means it's it's a doing that is focused on an action that's been done. Okay, it's not concerned with why you did it. It's not concerned with. Uh, inspiration, motivation, that's not how the author uses that. When they use the word proso, uh, Jeremiah packed up his fifth wheel and he pulled it over here and he parked it over there on the side of the curb. If I would use Jeremiah did that, Jeremiah prosoed that, I wouldn't be concerned with motivation on why I did that. I was just explaining the action that's been done. Jeremiah did that. Comprende? Spanish. <laughs> uh, I, I, would use the word, I would use the word proso. Make sense? I'll stick to just two languages tonight. Apologize. Um, Now, when you look at the other word, and by the way, Jesus doesn't use the word proso here. He's not talking about what the Father prosos, I proso. In other words, what the Father does in terms of action, I do in terms of action. That's not what he's talking about. He uses the Greek term here, poieto. And the Greek word poieto, which we translate do, is not so much concerned with action. It's concerned with motivation. And what Jesus is trying to say here, and if you can get a hold of this team, Jesus looks at the Pharisees, he looks to the leaders of Israel, and he says, you're frustrated with what I'm doing in the temple. Well, you need to understand, what makes the Father do what he does, makes me do what I do. So if you're going to be upset with me, you're going to be upset with him. See, what the Father poietos, I poieto." See, the inspiration, the inside motivation that makes the father tick oh, is the inside motivation which makes me tick. And he, as he begins to explain this, see, you go back in the first 15 verses of this chapter, and when you see Jesus coming into the temple, and he intersects the life of a man who's been there for 38 years, and you ask yourself, why did he do this? And his, his answer would be, because the father does that. Wouldn't it be something if that was your life? Wouldn't it be something if you went to school and, and you walked in and... You sat down in your seat and you had your headphones on before class started. And someone said, what are you listening to? And you said, 80s music. Because we know that 80s music is wonderful music. <laughs> and uh, they would say, well, 80s music? Would Jesus listen to that? You could look at them and say, Jesus is listening to that. Because I only listen to what Jesus listens to. I only watch what Jesus watches. See, what he's involved in, I'm involved in. How he feels about it is how I'm feel about it. And see, you can't tell me, if you're tight with him, you will miss what offends him. Okay? We're not talking about rules here. See, we're not talking about that kind of stuff. We're talking about when you turn on the TV set and something that is offensive to him, when you're tight with him, you know it immediately. And there's a disturbance, you understand? We call that discernment. We call that being tight with. See, this is what Jesus is talking about. And by, by the time you get down to the end of this book, see, he said that over and over and over and over again. See, if you're going to be frustrated with me, you've got to be frustrated with the Father because we're that tight. What well, makes him do what he does makes me do what I do. Now, this is what's talked about in verse 19. Again, we looked at that this week. And we also looked at verse 20, which again is the Father-Son kind of language. See, Jesus is a spitting image of his Father. And there is a revealing, there's a revelation of all that takes place from the Father. It's revealed to the Son. Now, see, now, now listen to me. Are you with me? Christianity, the teaching, the discipline that takes place, there is an inside communication. See, God does not want to communicate you what to do, if, if that makes sense. I, I, I beg God to do that kind of stuff uh, as a young Christian, just praying. Come down, Jesus, and tell me, what do you want me to do? Why, I, this is a crucial situation in my life okay what, what do you want me to do? Do I take fine arts this semester or next semester <laughs> i got to know this and see that, that those kind of questions he never see he never painted that kind of thing on my wall it 's but how he does speak to me, there's this inside longing communication that takes place where the things that drive him are the things that begin to drive me. And there's an inside communication there. I just begin to feel about things the way that he feels about them. See, what grieves him begins to grieve me. That's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Now, again, that's just two ones. I, uh, t- two specific passages. I didn't get a chance to look at you this uh, look with you at this passage this week. And it's rather aggressive. So I didn't mention it at the Methodist church or the Christian church. I want to mention it here. (laughs) All right. Now, bear with me. Verse 24. This is powerful truth. And this is, this is, it says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Again, what I'm trying to point out to is the language in this passage. It just concretes. It just. It just mashes together what Jesus says in verse 30, that I can do nothing by myself. Everything that I'm involved in, the Father's involved in. Now, you see that in verse 24. He says, I tell you the truth. That's in the, in the King James Version. That's verily, verily, I say unto you. That's the amen, amen language. And if you look back in the Old Testament, that amen, amen phrase takes place several times. And it always takes place before di- uh, divine proclamations, before divine announcements. So Jesus stands up and he says, amen, amen. In other words, this is a divine announcement. This is a divine statement that I'm about to give you. Serious business. Amen, amen, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word, okay, here's what I'm saying, Jesus says, but you don't believe me, who do you believe? The Father who sent me. So in other words, when you're hearing what I'm saying, you're believing the one who sent me. Now, again, (laughs) I love word studies. The word sent. You'll like this. I think you'll like this. There's two Greek words for sent in the original language. Okay? Actually, there's a couple different ones. And they're very, very specific. Teens, you'll love this one. There's the Greek word apostello, which is where we get our word apostle. The sent ones. And then there's the Greek word pimpo, which are both, both of these are translated send or sent. Apostello is an authoritative sending, okay? It is one who is sent with authority. That's the idea. But the Greek word pimpo is a little bit different. Um, first time I presented, and this has been a couple of months ago, I pre- preached this for the very first time at a retirement community in uh, Arizona. Uh, it's um, Sun City Church of the Nazarene in Sun City, Arizona. It's, a, it's an area that the city, that's a city ordinance. You can't live there unless you're 55 years and older. Uh, and they had me for revival every year we go out there and, uh, I just love them. They're godly people. So this is for, I, I wanted to test it on them. And I stood up and I said, when I say the Greek word pimpo, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? And they were all quiet except one little old lady. She goes, well, I think a pimp. <laughs> That's what she said, <laughs> which is interesting because, and again, I'm not trying to be aggressive or offend you. But that carries with it the idea of that word, okay? That's the idea of sending. Now, when you think of a pimp, uh, in the the negative connotation, now, now think concept here, okay? Seriously, think concept here. When you think of pimp, it's a controlling aspect, okay? Uh, A pimp is the one who hides in the corners, and he is controlling, and he's watching over the, the prostitute. And, hey, she never goes anywhere without his approval. And and wherever she is, he's just 20 feet away. And, man, you don't come up and approach her unless you approach him. And it's that kind of presence. That's the idea of, the, of our negative connotation in our society of the word pimp. When you come in and look at this word pimpo, here's how it's used. It is a sending. But the idea, it carries with the idea you have this great authority that is going to be sending someone. And he sends you. He pimpos you. And as soon as he sends you, the one with great authority gets down off of his throne and goes along with the one who has just been sent. <laughs> you get that? So the idea is, is that the father sent Jesus, but the father did not send Jesus by himself. The father says, I'm sending you. And then he gets down off his throne and goes along with Jesus. So we call that sermon, Pimp Daddy Jesus, which is <laughs> the idea that, and again. <laughs> now, come back to concept. I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to offend you in any sort of way. But, but to be honest with you, the idea is, that that's the idea of the word. Now, hear me. By the time you get down to chapter 17, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I pimpo you. And, yeah, that, that's funny, and, and it does make us laugh. But see, you've got to get that, man. You've got to get that. I, I don't do anything apart from him. And the New Testament idea of sin is anything that's done apart from Jesus is sin. Do you realize preaching can be sin? Preaching can be sin. See, what's sin? Missing the mark. That's the typical answer for it. That's the typical understanding. Wesley went a little bit deeper than that. Wesley said that sin is... There's two really types of sin, the way he talks about it. Sin properly so-called and sin improperly so-called and that kind of business. But the idea of sin is is any, I, see, you cannot live the life God has called you to live. So anytime you attempt to live, even out of the best intentions, you try to live the life God has called you to live, you're going to fall short. Why? Because you're unable to. You're missing the mark. It's sinful. So the idea of holiness is coming down inside of you, and what you are not able to do, God does. So if you come up here and preach out of your own strength, out of your own wisdom, out of your own abilities, guess what that becomes? So sin, you understand, sin is not a thing. Sin is an act. Sin is, a, is an involvement in something without the presence of Jesus. Folks, we believe this. That's consistent. That, that's the idea. And Jesus says this over and over. And by the time you get down to verse 30, he stands up as a testimony in the court setting of, of the Jewish law. And he says, I tell you the truth, by myself, not by myself, I can do nothing. It is impossible for me to act apart from the Father. We are tight. The Father has sent me, but the Father is present with me. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, or in the Last Supper scene, when he washed their feet, he says, you're all going to betray me. tonight. You're all going to leave me alone, but I'm not alone. (laughs) The Father is with me. And Jesus says stuff like, I'll never leave you and never forsake you. When I first became a Christian, uh, one of the books that radically changed my life was a little bitty book. You can get it at your Christian bookstore. Uh, It's written by a 17th century monk back in the 1600s, 1600s okay, or 17th century, and it's called uh, Practicing the Presence of God, written by Brother Lawrence. And uh, this guy was really interesting. He was getting in trouble by his superiors in his monastery because he was neglecting his times of meditation and prayer throughout the day they did that every day certain times and he just stopped going well he got he gets called in by his superiors out of the kitchen because he's a cook and throughout the book it's just interviews what this is is an interview from a protestant uh and that's what the book is it's an interview format and he, he was a he was a cook well he gets called in by his superiors and they say you know you've been neglecting your meditation and prayer time and he says yeah <laughs> yeah i have and they said why and this is what he said he said, because the time that I spend in the kitchen cooking is no different than the time that I spend in meditation and prayer. That Jesus, the reality of his presence, is just as with me when I'm cooking as just with me when I'm meditating. Wouldn't it be something? is it that you could just leave this place tonight and as his presence is real and is centered in your life right here, that when you go home and you go home this evening and you watch your television and you do whatever, you do the dishes for your wife and you begin to serve your family and that kind of stuff. See, the reality of his presence is no different than it is right here. And you function all day like that. That radically changed my life. And in college, I used to to do things that would help me remember because I would get up in the morning and by noon, I will have forgot that Jesus was with me. I mean, do you imagine what it would be like to just walk all day to realize that, whoa, he's with me. He's with me. See, that, that changed the way you talk to people. That changed the way you flip through the channels on the TV. It changed what you pause at what you don't pause at. It changed the way you would re- respond to your boss when he's breathing down your throat. It changed the way that you talk to your girlfriend or your boyfriend, to your husband or your wife, to your children. changed the music you listen to. In fact, it changed your whole entire life. Imagine if the literal, physical presence of Jesus just appeared right beside you and he walked with you and you talked with him all day long. Think that'd change your life? Shouldn't, because that's how you're supposed to be living right now. That's the idea. That's the reality of this passage. By myself, I can do nothing. <laughs> he's with me. That when you're listening to me, you're not listening to me, you're listening to him. This is what he's saying. And again, now this affects everything that's going on in the life of Jesus, okay? Listen to what he says next. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just. Now, this comes off a passage where he's been talking about the judgment. Okay, And Jesus is the judge, and on the last day, he's going to stand as judge. But that's all future stuff. In our passage here, when it says, I judge only as I hear, that's present tense. Which means, and there is an aspect of the, the final judgment being settled right now. But what Jesus is trying to say here is all the decisions, that word judge can also be translated "decide"? all the decisions, all the judgments, all those crucial decisions that Jesus makes in his, in his life right now is a direct result of the presence of, Je- or the presence of his father involved in those judgments. Okay, Let me bring this down in, in our in everyday living. See, the, de- the decisions that you and I make in our life right now, from day to day, you with me? The decisions that you make right now, are to be a direct result of the influence of Jesus in your life. Every decision that you and I make, every decision that we make, is a direct result of the presence of Jesus in my life. What I allow my my thought life to be wrapped around. What I allow my entertainment choices to be. What I allow my, my passions to become. My emotions, how they can get out of control or the lack of getting out of control. See, whatever you want to talk about. See, all the decisions that I make, the responses that I make to my wife, when I'm angry with so-and-so, when I'm frustrated with so-and-so, what, oh, you, the classes I take, the whatever. All of that stuff is a direct result of the influence of Jesus in my life. And then he says this. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just. The literal translation of that term is right. It's righteous. Um, Jesus says, my judgment. Now, Now, hear this. My judgment is right or righteous is what he says. My judgment is right. Now, again, this is legal terms. This is legal terminology. He talks about witnesses. A witness by itself is not valid unless accompanied by a couple other... Or, I'm sorry, a testimony is not valid unless it is accompanied by a couple other witnesses. That's law format. This is, a, this is a, almost a trial-type conversation. And so all of this stuff takes place under that kind of format. And Jesus says, listen, all of my judgments, all of my actions, all of my decisions are righteous. Okay? That's an that's a, that's a official type of word, a term that he uses. And what Jesus is doing, you're going to love this. He's setting forth a whole new standard of righteousness. Did you know that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, even in the the days that Jesus walked the earth, there was a different standard of righteousness than we have today as Christians as righteousness. Not a different standard of holiness, but a different standard of righteousness. Okay? For instance, none of us could be holy. In the, under the Old Covenant. But you could be righteous. Look at Luke. I asked you to mark Luke chapter 1. Verse 5. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Now listen to this both of them were righteous that's the word both of them were righteous upright just in the sight of god both of them were righteous okay and you might say to yourself well if they're righteous then why did they need the blood of jesus because it did not say they were holy there's a standard of righteousness in the old covenant are you listening to me there's a standard of righteousness in the old covenant and what is the standard it's in the rest of that verse Because both of them were uh, upright or righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. So the standard of righteousness was in the old covenant was that you were to uh, uphold that you were, hey, you were never expected to be holy in the old covenant. Okay? you were expected to observe the sabbath commandments you were expected to observe the law observe the precepts and the sacrifices and the whole system and all that kind of stuff you understand you still were not holy but that was a standard of, you with me that was the standard of righteousness in the old covenant okay? they were considered righteous jesus came now get this jesus came and there's a whole new standard of righteousness See, in the hour of the new covenant, as Paul tells us, you could do all the things that make the people in the old covenant righteous and not be righteous. Because there's a new standard of righteousness. (laughs) You didn't get it. Let me give it to you again. See, there's a whole new standard of righteousness in the old covenant. You couldn't be holy. Hey, God is this, we are that, you're absolutely other than God. But, see, God implemented this sacrificial system. And by observing all the ordinances of that thing, All the stuff in Deuteronomy and Numbers and all the strictness and the eating and the dietary laws and all that kind of stuff. By observing all of that, you could live in a standard of righteousness with God. Not holiness, but righteousness. But when you come into the new covenant, see that stuff is past. That stuff is gone. That stuff is old. That's no longer the standard of right living before God. Right living before God in the old covenant was by keeping all the standards. Right living in the new covenant is now being defined by Jesus. And right, right living in the new covenant now is being holy. This is the standard that Jesus gives us. The new standard of righteousness is this. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my decisions, my judgments are just, are righteous. Why? For I seek not to please myself but the one who sent me. Here's the standard of righteousness For the New Testament. Here's a standard of righteousness which leads to holiness in the New Testament. Yourself is absolutely abandoned. You are absolutely tight with the Father. You're walking hand in hand with Him. You're walking in intimacy with Him. And you seek not to please yourself, but to please Him. And whatever pleases Him in the decision, in the moment of your life that you're now facing, that is what you respond to. And that is right living and that is holiness. That's what we're talking about. He never stops beating this drum. Which is why I get so excited about it, because I think I'm on to something in the Gospel of John. By the time you come down to right before his crucifixion, Jesus says, As for the person who hears what I'm saying but does not keep uh, what I'm saying, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord. Hear this. I did not speak of my own accord, but the father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his commands leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just exactly what the father has told me to say. That's what he's saying. And by the time you get to chapter 15, what does Jesus tell the disciples? How how does he describe their relationship? It's vine and branch type of stuff. Okay, It's that kind of tightness i don 't know what that does to you. And me, for, for me, and looking at that, that 's really easy study. i 'm not really into theology, and yet everybody tells me that theology affects the way that I study the Bible, probably does. really not into church doctrine and what this church believes and what that denomination believes and that kind of stuff. sure, I 'm a Nazarene. But the fundamental flow of my life is this book, okay? I really care what this thing has to say and when I come into John chapter 5 verse 30 what it says is that if I were to stand up and give a testimony at the end of this revival what my testimony would be is this evening my life has come to an end and I have no decisions that are apart from him anymore when I get in my car he and I are going to drive home when I get out he and I are going to walk into my house When I wake up in the morning and I open my eyes, we're going to brush our teeth together. We're going to go to my job together. He is going to influence every decision that I make. See, you might ask, well, what are you going to do in the future? Whatever he's doing. (laughs) It's a ridiculous answer. But what other answer is there? Where are you going to go to school? Wherever he wants me to go. What are you going to be doing Friday night? Whatever he's doing. Who are you going out with Friday night? Whoever he's going out with. Well, is that the girl? If that's the girl that he wants for me. You have no opinion. You have no preference. You see, this, this is the idea of the passage. Would you be open for that in your life tonight? I mean, if, if, you could, if you could just come to a point this evening and make a decision. I want that in my life or no, thank you. I'll stick with what I have. How would you respond? How would you respond? How would you respond tonight if you were presented the opportunity to fall down before Him and say, I want no life but your life living inside of me? So that when you stand before Him on the last day and you look back at your life, you don't look back at your life, you look back at the demonstration of Him in a world, you become the skin of Jesus. Uh, That's what it means to be right. That's what righteousness is, that's right living always wanted to be right. I had to drop dead to be right. That's what the Bible tells me. I've been wrong all my life. Even in my best intentions, I'm wrong. I want to be right. And it's going to cost me my life. Uh, that's what we've been talking about this week. And I, I don't want you to miss that. And there's, I guess there's something to be said about you coming to church, girls, boys. There, there's something to be said about your tithe, parents, those kind of things. Why wouldn't you want that? Why would, I wonder in these kind of settings, why wouldn't we, and this, I don't want to pressure you, but I guess I just want to say, why wouldn't we all just fly out of our seats and throw ourselves at the altar and say, oh, I want that in my life? Why wouldn't we want that? Why wouldn't you want that to be the defining factor of your life? I love you tonight, Lord Jesus. I want a whole new standard of righteousness in my life. I want to have your ear. I thank you for hearing me because you always hear me. Have your way in my life tonight, Lord. From the moment I go to bed to the moment I wake up, let's be tight. I want your opinions on the decisions that I'm making. I want your opinions on how I manage my finances. I want your preference on how I handle my bodily drives, my angers, my sex drive, my emotions. All I, I want your preference in that. I want, I want your sway. I want your motive. I, just tell me, tell me, communicate to me. Just grant me the desires of your heart in my life. Let it be so tonight, Father, as we are here. Would you very, very aggressively speak to us tonight about your truth? I want that to be my testimony. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. No pressure on this. If that's not been your life, I'm going to tell you, you're going to need to respond tonight. want to ask you to get out of your seat and come down and pray. It's not so the evangelist would look good. (laughs) Uh, It's so that a whole new standard of right living can start to take place in your life. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be be wonderful to stand up on any given Sunday in your life and say, wow, I want to testify. Jesus had his way in me this week. (laughs) Jesus had his way in me down at my job this week. You wouldn't believe what he's been doing down there. I've just been, I've just been watching. It's been incredible. Oh, you wouldn't believe what God's been doing in my school. You wouldn't believe what he did outside my locker the other day. Uh, he's gaining more ground in my life. Somehow I'm, I'm releasing in areas of my life that I didn't know that I could release. And, and he's, he's having more authority through me than he's ever had before. Would you let that be your testimony this evening? I mean, Really? If we could just drop all the religious terms and, and all of that kind of stuff and, and all the things that we do and the things that make us feel good and the, th- the songs that we sing to Him and, and just release and allow Him to be the core of our life. I want that to be the standard of righteousness in my life. I can do nothing by myself. My decisions are only made as I hear from Him. And my, just, my, my judgments, my decisions, my actions are just. Because I seek not to please myself, but the one who sent me. Father, I love you this evening. Have your way in us this evening. Have your way in this 30-year-old man. We want your will. We want your way. And we'll give you all the praise. As you're bowed and eyes are closed, would you respond with to me tonight? Would you hunger with me tonight?